Well, my dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know the difference between dissatisfaction and desperation? I think it's this. One breeds either complacency or wishful thinking, and the other despair or faith. Dissatisfaction kind of runs from cool to lukewarm. Desperation, on the other hand, runs from fire to ice. I'd go out on a limb this morning and suggest that we, kinda, we live in a society that I think is marked by dissatisfaction. Most of us, though reasonably comfortable most of the time, often find ourselves messing with the last of the commandments, you know, the ones, the ones that have to do with coveting and envy. And I think we tend not to think about it too much because we think, oh, that's really not such a big deal. I think our national obsession is wanting what we don't have. And I'm as big a participant as any in that. You can call it a mild dissatisfaction if you want to, but if it weren't for that national sense of persistent want and lack, hunger for just a little more, for life to be, you know, just a little bit more satisfying than it is, some would argue that our our national economy would go right down the tubes if it weren't for that. Everybody wanting just a little bit more, something a little bit better. I remember when Laura and I were in our early years of parenting, living back in Minnesota, I became much more tuned in to this mild dissatisfaction because I became much more tuned in to what advertisers were trying to do to our children on the TV. <laughs> and there'd be this one commercial. You know, watching my kids watch commercials was like a, a study in human sociology. It really was. I remember there was this one commercial that came on for a while, virtually every evening, when the news was about to come on. And whenever this commercial would come on the TV, no matter what my kids would be doing on the floor, Becca was like one years old, and Kent was just about to turn four. Whenever this commercial came on, their heads would just swivel right to the TV, and they'd just be locked in like a laser beam. And first the music would start, boom, 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 and little cartoon buildings would be bouncing up and down, little cows would be dancing up and down, and then the voiceover would come, Cows in the corn, the newest game from the Minnesota State Lottery. <laughs> and I was thinking, wow, you know. I wonder, watching my kids tune into that thing, I wonder how many people, how many adults <laughs> were moved, captivated by that little piece of advertising to plunk down their hard-earned money, you know, to do the scratch off or pull the tab or whatever it was that they had to do to win, knowing the odds are ridiculous, but doing it anyway. Why would they do that? Well, that mild sense of dissatisfaction, wanting just a little bit more, a little bit of wishful thinking. What else could cause people to hand over their money so readily to the government, <laughs> right? That's why lotteries are so popular. Most folks know they're never going to hit it big. It's just a little bit of wishful thinking, right? And for the vast, vast majority of people who play those games, nothing really ever changes, right? that their pockets are a little lighter and the wishful thinking just goes on and on and on. But I've learned not to judge the behavior of 
gamblers too harshly because I know that their issue is my issue. None of us are immune from wanting just a little bit more than we have. For some people, they address that mild gnawing dissatisfaction by playing games of chance. Other people do other things, right? Save money for that new car or that new wardrobe, right? Or that extreme makeover or that bigger house or that working towards that next step up the ladder in their career, you name it. If I could just have that life over there rather than this life here, then everything would be okay. That's dissatisfaction. But what if you were more than dissatisfied with the circumstances of your living? What if, in fact, your present was unbearable and your future absolutely unthinkable? In other words, what if you were desperate? That's a different story. We met in our gospel reading for this morning from the fifth chapter, Mark, two characters, two people who are desperate. Jairus, a religious leader of his community, pleading for the life of his little girl who appears to be on death's doorstep, about to cross that dark threshold. And then this unnamed woman, whose life has slowly and painfully been ebbing away, a woman betrayed by her doctors and probably forgotten by her community, close to death now herself. And what we seem to have here is the story of two of the most desperate situations you can imagine, right? the sickness unto death of a child, and the impending loss of one's own life. That's pretty heavy stuff for a Sunday morning in the middle of summer, isn't it? But here we are. First, a man, Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, comes to Jesus in faith, asking that his daughter be healed. And there appears to be nothing very unusual about this. It would appear Jairus was most likely a very influential man, a very religious man, respected by his community, a good churchman, salt of the earth, right? Prime member of the legion, vice president of the rotary, all of that stuff. He's a good man, and he has faith that Jesus can actually do something with his desperation. And so we do expect a respectable healing to happen, but something happens to interrupt this respectable healing, a woman comes. A woman suffering from years of a hemorrhage that was taking her life. In other words, a person whose sex had already determined for her a lower station in her community. And now because of her illness, she was considered ritually impure. Do you know what that means? It means she wouldn't be allowed to worship with her community. A religious and social outcast whom the doctors had robbed. And she, just like Jairus, comes to Jesus in faith, trusting that Jesus can meet her desperation. She has the audacity, though, and the boldness to believe that her station in life doesn't really matter to the Messiah. If only I but touch the hem of his garment, then I'll be made well. Was she superstitious? Was she naive? Was she ignorant? Doesn't matter. According to the story, she was healed. Right? Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd. Do you see here? 
You see the power, the power of faith, even especially a childlike faith, born out of desperation. The saving power of Jesus is not dispensed here as though through an eyedropper to those who somehow deserve it. Apparently in this story, deserves got nothing to do with it whatsoever. Who deserves the power of God's attention? Well, according to this story, the power for new life is at the beck and call of faith. That's it. Faith that tells the hopeless that there is hope for them. Faith that tells the lonely that there is actually love for them. And faith that tells the dying that there is life for them. You know, much has been made, and I suppose much could be made, of the difference between the power of Jairus on the one hand as a respected male in his community and this unnamed woman with the hemorrhage. Much has been made of the way Jesus responds in this situation, first to the one who is powerless, then to the one who has power. But I'll tell you, I'm a lot less interested in Jesus' idea of triage here. In other words, who deserves his attention first or most? Who's more desperate? Than I am with God's immediate response to faith born out of desperation. And this is my contention, that faith born out of anything other than desperation probably isn't faith anyway. It's probably just wishful thinking. Whereas wishful thinking always leaves a person in a state of powerlessness when it comes to one's present and future. Faith has the power to create a new present and to open up a new future. See, after this woman in our story is healed instantly on account of her faith, poor Jairus receives word, that devastating news, that it's too late. Nothing to be done now. His daughter is gone. Nothing for anyone to do. To lose a child, not only what that life has already been, but everything that that life should have been, could have been, would have been, is absolutely unthinkable. And desperation for Jairus is now melted into despair. And it's that very moment that God in the flesh takes Jairus by the shoulders and looks him in the eye and says, don't be afraid. Now is the time for believing. Now. Now, I do not know the condition Jairus' faith was in when he went into that room with his dead daughter, those crying, devastated people all around him. But I've been in enough rooms like that to have an idea. Faith was probably all but non-existent at that moment. The Bible doesn't say either. You notice that? It doesn't mention Jairus' faith at all. What we see is Jesus taking that little girl by the hand and saying, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And she gets up. God takes what little faith there might be, born out of dead-end desperation, and creates a new future. The promise of grace in this story that it holds out to us is simply overwhelming for me. And I have to wonder, is there any desperation beyond the reach of God and Jesus? Is there any life so miserable and so dark that God's Holy Spirit can't somehow breathe life into it? Is there any condition 
that before God is terminal. But I would say this. As one who spends a fair amount of his time with people in some pretty desperate situations, where faith is present in Jesus, nothing before God is terminal. And I say that while I say this, that of course our bodies wear out. Of course they have an expiration date. Of course we carry around with us the curse of death, our separation from God, from neighbor, our selfishness, our discontent, the reality of our sinfulness brings death on its own terms for everybody, eventually. But to those who see the reality of sin and death and see just how powerless we actually are in the face of it, for those who know the power for new life is as close as a confession of trust, trust in the one who has risen from the dead before us. Martin Luther once wrote in his Heidelberg Disputation, he wrote these words, he said, the law says do this and it's never done. We never can do it. Faith says believe this and everything is done already. Our future is set, it's secure. Our lives are secure in the palm of the hand of the one who made us. This trust, this faith is the power given to us for new life for everlasting life, not for an easy life, but for the only real life that hopes beyond this one. And this is more than wishful thinking. Amen.